Welcome to the Myopia Exchange, our podcast series where we talk all things myopia from research to practice. Today, I'd like to welcome Philip Cheng, clinical optometrist from Melbourne, Victoria in Australia. Philip started his Greenfield practice eye care concepts in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne just a few years ago and has a laser sharp focus on myopia management, with this making up a majority of his clinical time and patient base. This keen interest has made Philip our most prolific contributor to the Myopia Profile Facebook group, where he shares countless cases and much wisdom gleaned from doing this every single day. He's also written for our My Kids Vision parent-facing website and helped us enormously with the My Kids Vision Facebook page. Philip and I recently discovered that we both graduated from optometry school in the same year, some 16 years ago now, albeit in different states of Australia, about 1,600 kilometres or 1,000 miles apart. We discovered this when we recently shared the stage, or the screen as it may be, in a webinar for Optometry Australia on myopia management, which broke all previous webinar records for attendance and engagement. It was on the back of this webinar, where Philip spoke about the practical aspects of myopia management, that I thought his message was worthy of an international audience. Philip, welcome to the Myopia Exchange. Thanks very much, Kate, for, for having me on the Myopia Exchange. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Fantastic. Well, let's get into it. Now, I really want to delve into the practical aspects of myopia management. And you've got, a, as I said before, a clear focus on myopia management in your practice. What do you feel has made your myopia management practice successful? Well, I guess um, there's different ways of defining success, but uh, I'm, I'm very happy to be able to provide a, a lot of patients in Melbourne with uh, the myopia um, care that they need. Um, and I think it comes from just having a, a clear goal to um, achieve what I set up to achieve for my practice and also being really genuine about um, the care that I provide to the patients. And I think that starts from really educating the parents that come to my clinic about what myopia is and you know, what treatments available and what it really means uh, for the child. Um, so I think um, if we pro uh, project ourselves as being experts on the matter and uh, with good understanding of everything to do with myopia, then um, you know, parents are gonna be um, happy and uh, with, with the service that I provide and they're gonna understand and uh, a lot more um, so, so I think it's just from uh, just also a, little, a lot of self-education on, on the topic as well um, and just being as good as I can be in, in, uh, in my OP management. Do and also, think, sorry, you go ahead. No, I guess uh, I do a lot of um, sort of um, branding exercises, if you like, or promoting my OP management uh, online on the website, uh, Facebook, and also um, any chance I have to talk to parents about myopia, whether they're coming in for myopia management or not, I try to tell them you know, about uh, the new options that are available for their kids. And some children, uh, some parents might not be ready, but they might not even have kids in that age group with myopia, but at least they, they sort of know um, what to expect if their child does develop myopia in the future. So something you just mentioned online uh advertisement or online awareness and Facebook and something I've noticed that you do for your practice is that if you have a child who's fit with OrthoK you've got a, a little poster they hold up you take before and after pictures which is which just looks fantastic it tells such oh, a positive message about children wearing contact lenses how do you have that discussion with parents and how do you get their permission I guess to post their children on Facebook 
Look, I guess, yeah, it looks, we would sort of like to celebrate the successes of our, of our patients. And uh, also, KO Myopia Management is a very important journey for them. Um, so they, they come in not knowing a lot about uh, myopia or contact lenses, some of them, and they, and they leave very, very happy with their also KO, their multifocal lenses. So I think it's, it's worthwhile celebrating um, those stories. Um, and it makes them feel very special as well. Um, so you basically just. Um, Dog, if, if you have a good relationship with your par- uh, patients or the parents, it's, it's quite easy to do um, and just ask for their permission. Do you think it's helpful being a myop yourself? Do you find yourself pointing to your glasses on a daily basis and saying, I wish I had this when I was a kid? Well, I do. Yes, I do. Yeah, I, I, I talk to them, you know, being a high myop, we, I do, we didn't have these options available to, available to me when I was growing up. So I'm left with minus eight glasses and 28 millimeter eyes. So I sort of bring that into conversation sometimes um, just to kind of demonstrate, you know, these new um, interventions that we've got are, um, are relatively recent. That's probably why they haven't heard about it before. And that now we can make a difference for their child. Mm, I find it, I'm only a very minuscule minus one, but I was an adult onset myop. So I find that story quite useful in talking about how you can become myopic even without a family history. So mm. I think our own experience with optical products and, and vision correction and our vision experience definitely helps inform how we talk to parents and patients for sure. Mm-hmm. So what do you think has been the most difficult part of establishing and running a myopia management practice? You talked about how you need to educate parents. Obviously, you've got to think about how you're setting up your clinic and your book to be able to accommodate that? Well, I guess the, the most difficult part of, of, of establishing a practice is, to, is the uh, uncertainty of, of um, you know, setting up a Greenfield store. So, um, yeah, I had this vision about three or four years ago to, to do something a little bit different. I was inspired by a... I talked at the Brian Holden Vision Institute in 2016 on myopia. I think uh, you were there on that day giving some presentations. And um, yes, yeah. <laughs> so it was, I was really inspired and I, and I saw that the evidence was becoming more clear that uh, something could be done for, for myopic children. And, um, and I decided to do something more about it. I had at, the, at the time I was working in, in the corporate setting, um, limited, um, options available were more limited. So it was one day I, I just decided just let's, I'm just going to do it. So, you know, giving up a, a corporate easy, cruisy job to you know, start fresh. So that was a big challenge, of course, and it's, of course, uh, very risky. Um, but I think the journey has been sort of, um, certainly been worthwhile and uh, very, very um, satisfactory um, in terms of um, the, the personal gains, I guess, um, to us personal satisfaction in helping more more children. Um, so on a day-to-day basis, running a myopia management practice is um, a little bit different, I guess. Um, the parents ringing up uh, about for appointments, you have to sort of um, engage them at every point um, that they make contact with the practice, um, giving them information um, about myopia. Um, yeah, so I guess... And, uh, of course, um, purchasing equipment for the practice and making sure the practice is uh, well-equipped for, for the job that uh, is, is doing. And that includes um, purchasing optical biometry to, act, to measure axial length and, um, of course, calling a topographist to do ortho-K. 
So I'm, I'm definitely keen to talk to you more about axial length in a moment, but I'm interested in exploring where your patients come from. So you started from scratch. Mm -hmm. uh, what have you done to go out and talk to, have you gone out and talked to teachers or GPs or colleague optometrists or spent more of your energies on your website? Well, you know, what percentage of your patients have found you themselves versus might be referred into you, whether that be from current patients or from other health professionals? Okay, so look, let's say probably that maybe about half the patients have been referred by previous patients. So I guess that's a, that's a good sign that um, you know patients are happy with the service that you're providing. Um, I would say probably maybe thirty percent are coming um, via the website or doing the Google Google search and finding someone to help the child, and the rest would be uh, referrals from um, my colleagues or um, doctors or other, other professionals. So have you done a lot of going out and meeting colleagues or meeting doctors or teachers? Yeah, look, I tried, yeah. Like that area, yeah? I have to say I probably haven't done as much as I was going to, um, just yeah, been getting a little bit busy. But whenever I get a chance to talk to any health professional or, or colleagues, I, I talk to them about what I do in my practice. I think it's uh, it sort of um, seems to interest them. Um, what the kind of things that we can do about myopia these days. And a lot of people and other health professionals and doctors don't seem to realise that. But I, yeah. I certainly can do a lot more in terms of um, talking to teachers and, and going to the schools. I think that's an opportunity um, available. Yeah, well, I guess if you're busy, that's mission accomplished. So if you don't have time yeah. to get out, then, then that's a good thing. You've got, mm. you've got the patients coming through the door. So... I wanted to talk to you about axial length and you do contribute loads of interesting cases to our myopia profile Facebook group. You measure and chart axial length growth in your practice and you quite often present this in your cases. And you mentioned getting the right equipment to practice myopia management. How long have you been measuring axial length for and how has that changed the way you practice? Okay, so I've been measuring axial length for about a year and a half now. Um, so I did the first year of myopia management without um measuring axial length. Now, of course, you can't uh, monitor progression through refractive error. But I was finding that with uh, patients well, on ortho K lenses, this was proving to be quite quite a challenge because obviously you can't measure refraction at any real point in time. You can't always wash out your um, patients every six months or so. And um, and the vision and the topography, that can be a little bit more variable from, from day to day, from visit to visit. So I was looking at ways to try to improve the monitoring of myopia progression for the all K patients particularly. So I uh, invested in an A-scan initially, and I used it for about six months, but I was finding that the, the readings were sort of, even though I was getting axial length measurements, they were sort of a little bit more variable. And then um, as I was doing more of K cases, I realized that we'll probably need something a little bit better. So then I went and um, invested in the IOL master, optical biometer so I can measure axial length much more precisely. And these days, I really couldn't do without um, um, axial length measurement in my clinic. Um, if it wasn't working, I probably would have to close the store. So um, it just <laughs> certainly... Yeah. That's, how, uh, I certainly my exactly, That's yeah. how I feel about my Exactly, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if so, my yeah. not working, I'll just go home. <laughs> go home, exactly right, yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, look, I use it uh, in a number of ways, um, axial length. I use it for education. So if we're talking about myopia progression as being, as being um, 
i.e. elongation or abnormal eye growth. It's essential, I think, to be able to quantify that, um, to be able to measure what we actually are suggesting we, we, we're treating. Um, so, so that helps with the conversation, of course, to, to measure what the current axial length might be and then also to chart the, the, the changes over time. And there, there are some very interesting findings um, when you start measuring axial length. So as you know, like some kids who have relatively so lesser levels of myopia in terms of refractive error, sometimes they can have quite long axial length and vice versa. So it does change the way you practice in terms of assessing the risk um, because we, we want to keep the eye length as, as low as possible, below 26 millimeters if we can. So in some cases, if they're coming in minus three at 25 and a half, you have to treat those patients as being a little bit more urgent than someone who's coming in with 23 millimeter axial lengths. So do you measure axial length in your adult myopic patients? Look, I have been actually, yeah. It's um, And I'm seeing some interesting findings there too. It's like... Um, just you know, last a few days ago, I was measuring, uh, following up on an author K adult patient who's a medical student, intensely studying, of course. So, in the past um, three months or so, she, her axial length actually increased a little bit, and she's in her early twenties. So it's uh, it's an interesting finding. So I, I don't think adults necessarily their eyes actually stop growing at eighteen, which is what we traditionally thought. I think um, there's a um, some more interesting findings to come when we start measuring axial length in adults. Yeah, it's definitely something that we need to learn more about. And I've just got something that's crawled into the back of my mind from, I think, a recent research paper about young adult axial length elongation, but it's only just a ghost of something. So it's definitely something we need to learn more about. Mm -hmm. I think the, the thing I find interesting about measuring axial length in practice and for adults is that it gives me an indicator of their disease risk separate from refraction. Like you were talking about earlier, you could have a child who's minus two with a 25 and a half millimetre long eyeball. Similarly, I remember being at optometry school and being told that if our myop was over minus four, we should uh, do a fundus examination through dilated pupils every year or every two mm -hmm. years. But I sort of recalibrated that criteria to axial length. And mm -hmm. I think that it's a it's another indicator that helps us put things in perspective. I guess like corneal thickness helps to put IOP into perspective. Mm -hmm. Exactly right. I think the more information we have about the patient, the, the better we can manage them. It's like, I guess, treating glaucoma. We can treat glaucoma without an OCT, but if we have the OCT, we've got more information to, to look at. So we can, um, yeah, manage them in a... In a with, with more clinical information. So that's going to be better for the patient. Yeah. So if a child comes in and you've measured their axial length and you've measured their refraction and their axial length has changed but their refraction hasn't, how do you have that conversation with the parents? What do you, what do you tell them, I guess, and what do you not tell them to, to appropriately paint the clinical picture? I guess we don't sort of have the full picture about... Um, axial length changes uh, we don't have the percentile growth curves at the moment that we can use so it makes it a little bit tricky sometimes when there's a little, little bit of a mismatch because younger children they might have a greater grade a greater rate of normal eye growth um, so we assume 0.1 millimeter per year to be fairly average normal eye growth but in younger children it may be a bit more than that so sometimes a little bit hard to gauge exactly um, what the excess elongation might be but look i try to tell the parents hmm? Oh, sorry. You go ahead. I, look, I tried to tell the parents that. Um, yeah, I tried to tell them that uh, 
we're, we're aiming for about 0 0.1 to 0 0.2 millimeter um, per year change of axial length. Um, and we're seeing a lot more than that. And obviously, treatment might not be working as well as we're hoping. And we might have to do alternative treatments or add another treatment. Yeah, so I guess that's the, the tricky part is as we learn more about axial length, we get an idea of what success looks like from visit to visit. But I guess what I'm hearing from you is that charting the axial length is something that really helps to delineate a trend over time. So a single measure might be a little bit tricky to understand how far the child has moved from before, although you've got the 0.1 to 0.2 millimetre gauge to go on and, and obviously their age. But once you start to chart things out over time, that's where you might get a, a little bit more of a picture. Yeah, a better picture because you can get measurement fluctuations from visit to visit. Um, no instrument is 100% accurate. So I think over time you get a much better picture and then uh, if the visits are very close. Yeah. So the thing about axial length, though, is that most of us aren't measuring it. Most of us might not necessarily have access to it in the near future, if ever. And there was a poll in the Facebook group. I think you might have actually put this poll up that we had 426 respondents and over 60 percent of them are not measuring axial length, with the main barrier being affordability of the equipment. Now, that's in our Facebook group. That's an engaged group of myopia managers. So outside that group, I'm sure it would be even more than 60% who don't have access to a, a way to measure axial length. It could be 90 or 95. Mm -hmm. So what would you say to our colleagues who can't measure axial length? Can they still provide myopia management? How should they go about gauging success? Mm -hmm. Okay, sure. Well, I'll go and say, I'll tell them to just uh, go and buy one. No, that's seriously. <laughs> no, I think, look, of course, everyone can still provide myopia management um, with the equipment that they've got. Um, I did, once, a couple of days ago, I posted a, a study to, um, they were looking at estimating axial length from um, conventional um, optometry measures, such as uh, refractive error and um, keratometry readings. So obviously, it's only a um, mathematical model doesn't always apply to every child in the population, but it might it might give uh, some a guide in, in terms of um, what the risk factors might be. You know, if it's a twenty-four millimeter eye or a twenty-six millimeter eye, so we can use that. Um, but of course, if they uh, you know, if they really can't measure axial length, then of course we can only go by refractive change. And um, I would say if we if we've got, if we have established uh, the rate of progression before in terms of diopters, we can we can measure how effective a treatment is in uh, compared to um, what we were progressing at before. So if we say getting a 0.5 of a change per year now compared to before, we've we've halved the progression effectively. So that's still a very um, good outcome for the patient. Um, if we can do a bit more than that, then obviously then then great. Um, so I think they, they should. Uh, to do what they can um, with the equipment that they've got at their disposal. Even though it might be a little bit more tricky sometimes, especially if they start doing also K um, and not measuring axial length. And also the the, the disparity in the, in the effect of atropine for axial length change and refractive change that sometimes makes it a little bit tricky to assess success, uh, to assess yeah the success of the treatment if the refraction is not uh, changing much, but their axial length might be. so. I guess it, they just have to do what, what, what they can. Um, but there's so many options available these days. So you don't, um, you, you can you can fit a child with a multifocal contact lens such as my size, um, FDA approved now. And we know that the efficacy is very good. So you, you can trust the, the published data that, that the treatment will uh, work in most cases. 
I think they can start with something like that. That's actually a really good point. That's something I was talking to Mark Bullimore about in a recent podcast that a lot of the studies have a fairly nice match between axial and refractive change. So if we can't measure axial length, but we're having a refractive effect and we know from the data that the axial and refractive effect will be about the same um, or we have some gauge of what that is, then then we can trust our diopters. It's just, I guess, our diopters aren't as fine a measurement instrument as what axial mm-hmm. length is. And, they, yeah. and then we also miss out on that gauge of, of disease risk. So mm. something I've been meaning to do in my practice and I've just not set it up yet is reaching out to local uh, colleagues and offering to measure axial length for them. Is that something that you've done at all with local colleagues? Well, I haven't actually um, done it, but I've suggested a couple of of practitioners um, about that. Yeah, just want to see how it um, might uh, start to implement that, uh, that service, I think. I think yeah, it'd imagine. be worthwhile, yeah. Yeah, we need to put that on our to-do list. Hey, we figure out an axial length measuring network. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably easier than going to do a local ophthalmologist to measure axial length, I would yeah. say. Yeah, definitely. So while we're talking about Australia, uh, we really seem to be leading the world when it comes to engagement with myopia management, and even if it's just in this first foundation of education. So we've got about 40% of the whole profession of optometry in Australia, part of the conversation in the Myopia Profile Facebook group, which is pretty huge. The only other country approaching that, interestingly, is the Netherlands. They're the second most engaged country in the world. So from this ongoing international discussion and understanding what's happening regarding opportunities and challenges in other countries, we see what the barriers are to myopia management in other countries. We see what the opportunities are. What do you think it is that makes it easier to practice myopia management in Australia? Well, I think, I think we are actually very lucky in Australia to have um, access to a lot of options for myopia management. So we don't seem to have the barriers that the US has with um FDA approval and what's on label and off label, that kind of thing. And our um, eye care system in Australia is, is sort of well set up for myopia management as well. We don't, uh, so different from parts of Asia where you have opticians who only do refraction and you've got ophthalmologists. So our primary care optometrists in Australia can do so many, so many things. And uh, these days, I would say probably the majority of, of, of practitioners are therapeutically endorsed, so they can prescribe atropine. And um, as a country, we've got so many options. We've got uh, contact lenses, a wide range of contact lenses uh, available, um, spectacle lenses, um, except the DIMS lens at the moment. Um, and also, okay, I think we, as a, as a country, we're, we're very keen to fit um, complex contact lenses and RGP. So I think, you know, optometrists are well-trained to, to, to fit um, RGPs anyway from university. So I think that these factors make us uh, well-equipped to prescribe IP management compared to some of the other countries. We're nicely placed between the Western world and Asia, I guess, and we've got a good percentage of uh, people of Asian ethnicity in Australia as well. So I guess mm-hmm. we've got a, a nice um, opportunity to, to look after these patients just by sheer volume, which, of course, is going to be more concentrated in our urban areas rather than our rural areas. Yeah, that, that's true. Um, oh, I'm starting to see... Um, more of my kids from the country, uh, Victoria, actually. So that's quite interesting. Yes. So I think it's... Oh, um, really? They're not yeah. getting enough outdoor time. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. 
So it's um, yeah, it's quite interesting about Australia, considering that um, historically we're not a, you know, we're not we don't have a big population of myopes, but uh, certainly maybe with the immigration as well and being very close to Asia demographic um, geographically, you know, we're seeing a lot more patients here with myopia. Mm, yeah, it makes us a a, a good um, test bed, I guess, in a way for for leading the world with myopia management. And and now that my side has seen FDA approval in the US, mm-hmm. uh, and we've got we've got a similar scope of practice to the US. Some states of the US, um, while there'll be some states of the US that have a wider scope of practice than us, I think that we're hopefully a good example for how they could take up this area of practice and and just offer this clinical this better clinical care to their young myopes. Mm-hmm. So back to your practice, back to the everyday, what's the mm-hmm. most common thing that parents ask you? Is there any particularly unusual misconceptions or questions you've been asked when it comes to having these in-depth discussions in the room? Well, look, one, probably one of the most common things they ask would be, is my, is my child too young for contact lenses, like ortho K or soft lenses? Um, other things they ask is uh, how effective the treatments are likely to be, um, and will the rever- will the myopia actually be reversed uh, with treatments? These are sort of common questions, and also misconceptions such as um, you know, alternative treatment options like eye massages, um, acupuncture, things like that, and of course under correction that everyone's uh, here hears about. Yeah, those are common things, and it's just about. Um, educating them really based on the evidence that we've got available in the, in the research. And I my white papers is a pretty good source um, in terms uh, when it comes to discussing these things with, with parents. Yeah, that's um, uh, what just came to mind when you were talking then is the, you mentioned eye exercises and I was thinking of the Chinese eye exercises which are done being widespread in schools throughout China and I think it was just at the International Myopia Conference it might have been this year or it might have been mm-hmm. Arvo this year where I saw a randomized controlled trial that proved that Chinese eye exercises which I think is where they just palm their eyes and look at the roof and things like that yeah but mm-hmm. they they proved conclusively that they didn't work and that seemed laughable that they had to do a study for that but it's, <laughs> it's ingrained itself into uh, public health policy over there so I imagine yeah. when seeing it's it's not something I've been asked about very much but I wonder for you if you're seeing a lot of children of Asian ethnicity if you if you do get frequently asked about Chinese eye exercises or yeah I get asked about that yeah I do get asked a little bit about that yeah and looking at green yeah. objects and things like that <laughs> Yeah, and uh, yes. another one I know I've had is that parents think, I think you mentioned this earlier, that atropine will fix the myopia. And that's that's obviously a communication challenge. There's a difference between correcting myopia and controlling myopia. And it's important yeah, exactly. they understand the difference. Yeah. Yeah, and I have had um, parents uh, of children who've been on atropine from you know, ophthalmology, I guess, um, and, and not wearing their glasses and haven't been told about wearing their glasses. They think their atropine is just going to fix it all. Yeah, that's a that's a difficult part, isn't it, in ensuring mm. they've, they've got everything covered, the correction and the control. That's so, right. so in talking about treatments, how do you set realistic treatment expectations? Think you're having that first discussion, you've got all of the clinical tools all of the toys to be able to monitor things over time but how what what discussion do you have to set the treatment expectations right from the outset 
Mm-hmm. Well, I told him that uh, treatments are uh, evidence-based to, to slow down the progression of myopia, but they, uh, they might not stop it. And in many cases, it doesn't stop, um, particularly for younger children and also those with very strong family histories. So I just try to make it very realistic to them not to expect that uh, the diopters will, will just uh, stay as it is, which is what a lot of them actually ask. Will, will the myopia just stay at minus three if they're wearing also K for the next five years? And it's probably not likely to stay at minus three. It will increase a little bit, but uh, what we're hoping for is not to increase significantly like they did before the treatment. So I try to make things um, realistic. Um, and if parents can come in and wanting the myopia to stop, then I would actually just talk to them and, and just say, look, I, I think um, maybe what you're saying is a little bit unrealistic in terms of what's uh, achievable. Of course, if we can stop the progression, then that, that would be a bonus, but we can um, probably just hope for about a 50% reduction um, in progression. And maybe a little bit more, more if we start doing the, um, combination treatments. Okay, so that's a, that's the key message. Firstly, is we can't stop it. We're just trying to slow it down. And then once you see the child back, then you start to, as we've talked about, measure axial length, measure diopters, compare to what it was before, mm-hmm. compare to average progression for their age to gauge success. But mm-hmm. what I'm hearing there is the, the key thing that you delineate at the outset is that we can't stop progression. We're just trying to slow it down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not in all cases. If they get a fantastic response, and then some kids do, where the axial length just completely stays static, then that's amazing. So, But we don't sort of expect that from the onset. I don't want them to expect that either, because if you set expectations like that, then you're just um, setting up yourself for a fall. Yeah. And I guess if they stop, you can claim all the credit. Hey, you can say, oh, it's all me. It's my glorious ortho K fit. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's really interesting thinking about how we do monitor over time and, and how we do gauge success and that the individual child in the chair, we can't be sure when their myopia is going to stop. So as you said, we could get a 100% effect, but we, mm. we need to, in the first instance, just make sure that parents clearly understand what we're trying to achieve and what their options are. And interestingly, something you mentioned earlier is, is parents being willing for their children to wear contact lenses. Do you think that they're more willing to wear contact lenses coming in to see you because they've been referred or because they've read a lot on the website? Do you think that those sorts of things prepare them for contact lenses or do you still have to have a lot of discussions to get parents over the line uh, in considering contact lenses for their kids? Okay, so look, I guess it's a... um... It's the type of practice I'm running. Uh, a lot of parents come in already sort of expecting some kind of treatment. Um, so, and a lot of them do know about also K um, you know, coming from Asian backgrounds. So a lot of their, some maybe their school friends or their family friends might, might wear also K. So they already know about these options, some of them, um, which makes it a little bit easier because um, they know other kids have worn these lenses before and they can wear them successfully. Um, other kids that come in um, might have never heard about contact lenses um, for, for children. So those discussions are a little bit more tricky, I guess. Um, and some parents are also a little bit more sort of um, more pushy, I guess, um, for the child to be wearing a contact lens and the child might not be necessarily ready for it. So those are also challenges. Um, I would say, yeah, look, uh, yeah. most yeah, kids yeah. are hmm, very happy when they start do wearing wearing contact lenses. So um, I've had, had, had a few who've been in tears and, uh, you know, screaming and all that. But once you've actually put the lens in, it's not as bad as they think. 
Yeah, that's the challenge, isn't it? The getting past that first application. And also I was just um, smiling and nodding along there because I have recently had parents who are keener than their children. And I yep. think it's a real skill <laughs> for us to us to pull up and say, Look, we we can't push anymore at this point. We're we're going to go we're going to go into meltdown if we push any yep. further. <laughs> I'm going to send you home with eyeball homework so you can practice holding your lids and holding yep. your fingers close and touching your sclera, and then yep. come back and and possibly even completely revise our plan that we had initially mm-hmm. if if contact lenses aren't an option at that time. Exactly. Yep. <laughs> Well, look, thank you so much for this discussion. I think this has given our clinical colleagues lots to think about in terms of how we can set up a myopia management practice, how you can manage it over time, promote it, work with uh, local colleagues, as well as working with parents and patients to make sure that you're successful just from the outset by setting the right expectations. So thank you so much for all of your advice, Philip. And uh, I will right. see you back online very shortly. Yeah, we'll do. Yeah. I'm sure <laughs> we'll, much, jump, <laughs> we'll jump straight back on there once once we're finished. Uh, yes. <laughs> awesome. Thank okay, you so much for your much, time. Cage.